Okay, warriors, you are listening to Unqualified Therapists. Remember, stay wild and weird. Hey, warriors, this is Amy. And I'm Sarah. We are the hosts of The Unqualified Therapist. We are not here to give you advice. We are here to tell you our stories, share your stories, and bring on the professionals from time to time. Mental health is complicated, and we know that from our personal experience. We believe in professional therapy. Both Sarah and I use that on our own healing journeys. But we also know it isn't one size fits all. The stigma surrounding mental illness can make us feel alone. We are not alone. You are not alone. And you're listening to The Unqualified Therapist Zinc. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Unqualified Therapist. I got no mouth sounds for you. Mouth sounds? We were just talking about mouth sounds <laughs> before we started. So that came out as mouth sounds. She's got, go. she's got no sound effects for us. That's what I meant. Sound effects. But that's okay. We are here in part two of our series um, in Mental Health Awareness Month with Dr. Katie Stewart. This week, we are talking about... Um, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, two illnesses that um, we don't have a lot of information about always, just unless you're dealing with it. And there's a lot of myths to bust. It's yeah. a weird word, bust. It's myth busters. I guess that's why I said it. I think that's why I said it. And then Mental after I said it. health myth busters. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so... <laughs> I can't believe it was me who that said it. That was kind it. of an All undesirable right. mouth noise. Yes, it was. Yes. Buster. <laughs> <laughs> it sure was. All right. But in reality, I mean, that's what we're here to do because I that the myths are what keep people afraid and keep people in the dark and in a place of fear. And we want everyone to come out of that space to stop the stigma, to be able to understand these illnesses much on a much higher level and accept the people in their lives and the people not in their lives that um, may be dealing with, I never know what to say, mental illness. Like, it is I never so call hard. It, yeah. There, there's nothing that sounds exactly right. And there's nothing, there's nothing that fully describes it. You know, we don't want to say mental illness doesn't feel right. Psychiatric illness disorder doesn't sound right. So I mean, what about just illnesses? Yeah. Just these things that are affecting millions of people every day. I mean, cause it's what you're going to call a physical ailment. Right. Exactly. Illness. Yeah. So that's what we are here to do is to educate and to um, destigmatize because I think that had I heard um, three hilarious ladies talking about bipolar <laughs> disorder, I would have been like, wait, what? Other people know about this? And I could have like had people to talk to. So we are here for it. Yeah, because I, I think it's important for everyone to know a little bit about your backstory. So if you just want to kind of give us if, if people are first time listeners, just knowing where you're coming from yeah. and, and how you didn't talk about it for years and mm -hmm. why. 
so first time listeners, people go back. <laughs> I say that I say that lovingly. Don't go all the way back. Yeah. <laughs> There's some errors there in our sound. But so my husband, um, his name was Scott. We were married for uh, 17 years, and he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder one. And he had struggled with that for, I would say it was about 10 years of our marriage. I mean, he was undiagnosed for many of those years. And then once he got the diagnosis, um, it was just a long journey of medication. And uh, at the beginning, it was just medication and that was it. Like we just did a lot of therapy and medication. Honestly, like, and I want to talk about this. I'm not sure if this is true, but a lot of my therapists say it's true that as you get older, as you have more manic breaks, it gets worse because yes. the, the hospital stays happen later. And um, so we struggled with how to manage it. And I did not tell anyone for ooh, a very long time until it was the first hospital stay. And it was absolutely necessary because I needed help. Um, but I really did keep it to myself and that I only told a couple people. I never told friends and I never told work and I never told anyone because, um, they would, I don't know. I just, I was afraid of what they would think. And I never wanted people to look at Scott differently. Mm -hmm. Um, especially because of the way that people think about this illness. So yeah, I mean, really to learn about it at the time that I found out about it, the internet was very, there wasn't much. So, and there weren't many books. Um, so I really didn't know a whole lot. There weren't any like, I don't know, chat rooms. <laughs> I tried really hard to find people. Now there's, you know, Facebook groups and there's all sorts of things. But the support was uh, really just me trying to like manage it, talk to a psychiatrist as much as possible and manage is the best way to say it, manage. Um, so that is why I want to help people with understanding these two specific disorders that are considered the quote unquote scary mental yeah. health illnesses. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, scary is an interesting word because it's scary to people who don't know what these disorders entail, but also they are scary to the people who experience them, whether, you know, first person having a bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, or to the people like you, Amy, caring for them, the people in their inner circles who are watching these things happen and feel very alone and very helpless as they move through the disorders. Yes. And there is this part of bipolar disorder um, that we're going to probably talk about and touch on is that when they do come into a, a manic state, they are no longer the person that you know. So mm -hmm. Scott was my person and really that was it. He was my best friend. He was everything to me. And so when he had a manic episode, he was gone. And that is the scariest part is when they yeah. leave. Yeah. And that's, you bring up a great point, Amy, because we talked a little bit about just educating people. What is bipolar disorder? And you brought up a manic episode and that is actually the distinguishing quality of a bipolar one disorder. So when we, when we talk about bipolar disorder, there's bipolar one, there's bipolar two. Um, and then there's kind of their cyclothymia where people move through these states more quickly. But I think typically when we think about bipolar disorder, it's the bipolar one, and that is defined by a manic episode. You have to have mania 
for a bipolar one diagnosis to be made. So I think it's important to talk about what does that look like? And Amy, anytime you want to jump in with what it looked like to you kind of looking in, but the main things are inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, or so these people, you know, when you're in a manic state, someone might sleep for two, three hours and act like they just slept for 12. Um, yeah, his famous line was, I don't need sleep anymore, Aim. Like, yeah. I don't know why, but I just don't need it anymore. Yep. And that, so there's this extreme energy that comes with it. And you can see how this all kind of goes together. More talkative than usual, or uh, kind of pressure to keep talking, that pressured speech where it's just blah, 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 and it just goes, goes, goes. And you, as the listener, can't keep up flight of ideas or their experience that their thoughts are just racing. It's like, if you could see the thoughts, you wouldn't be able to catch one. They just come and come and come. Distractibility, increase in goal-directed activity. So they might actually, I've treated people with bipolar disorder who love mania or hypomania because they're getting so much done. I'm so productive. I can do all this stuff. They're like, you might come home and maybe your partner has rearranged all of the furniture in the house as well as painted. Um, another thing that goes with this is um, stuff like spending. So that's falls under the criteria of excessive involvement in activities that have a high potential for painful consequences. So spending sprees and not just like going and buying a couple new outfits, maxing out all your credit cards, coming home with a new car, gambling. It might look like hypersexuality, um, substance overuse. And so you can see how all of these things, when you put them together are dangerous. Um, are detrimental to people's relationships and also not recognized by the person experiencing them. And I think that is one of the most difficult things because when we talked about, you know, anxiety and depression, we talked about for any mental illness or whatever we're going to call it diagnosis to be made, there has to be subjective distress or this decrease in functioning that's observable to other people. Often there is no distress with mania. It's, I'm all out. I'm having fun. I don't need to sleep. I can, you know, blow all the Coke, buy all the cars. And like Amy said, that just doesn't look like the person you knew a week ago. And you're right. They don't know they have the illness when they're in mania. They refuse to believe and then that you're the enemy and all of these things. But yeah, so some examples, I mean, every single thing you said, um, we went through, but, uh, we had 10, over $10,000 of gambling debt. He would spend all night at the casino and then come home in the morning and pretend like he was sleeping the whole night. That went on for a long time. Um, lots of leaving, uh, sometimes even just like getting on a plane and going to California because there was some author he wanted to see. And he felt like if he showed his ideas to this author, the author would be like, yes, I'm going to publish your book. Or... Right. So you can see there's actually a few of those manic traits right in that one act. There's the grandiosity. If I show this person this, yeah. there's the spending, just going away, not considering any consequences. Yeah. And they're moving so fast that they make a lot of mistakes. So he yeah. would always like get 
towed or his car, his rental car, when he would go across this country, would get like impounded. I mean, there was a lot of things like he was like, I just forgot. Like, I didn't really know. Like it was, you know, after the fact when I'm like, what happened? And we're trying to put the Mm -hmm. pieces together. And when we try to put the pieces together, there's a lot of memory that he doesn't have. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, you know, you're always kind of the way it's been described to me is, you know, these thoughts are happening, 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 and you're just following this thought and following that one. And there's not necessarily an arc to it, you know, or anything really tying these things together. So we're not sitting in anything when we're manic, you're not paying attention and attention kind of, to me, kind of precedes memory. We have to be able to attend to something before we can form a memory of it. So if we're not attending, where is the memory going to be? It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Wow. That makes a lot of sense with that too, because I, I would always think like, how, um, how do you not remember? Like, how do you not have memory of that? And I just thought it was just a part of like the illness, but that makes sense about forming the memories around it. You know, I think a lot of people tried to tell me too, that he was faking it. Like that he, that he, that he could remember and that he didn't want to own up to it, that sort of thing. And I was like, I honestly don't think he remembered like what happened, you know? And, um, there is a, there is a part that that's a little bit dangerous in what I see in other, you know, bipolar families or widows or uh, spouses or whatever that can be where that's where they get angry or they get violence or they get and a lot of it is is that they just don't trust you at all so when you come at them and say like listen I think you should sleep or I think you should do this or I think you should do that or you don't understand what they're saying when they're talking a thousand miles a minute Right. Why can't there was, I remember near the end, he he just like would chase me around the house and be like, you're not listening. You're not listening. I'm making so much sense. And you're not listening. This is the best idea ever. I was like, I don't understand. And I would just like try to fake it, like be like, okay. But he was talking so fast that none of it made any sense. Right. And so like, that was that idea that I wasn't supporting him or that I was dismissing him in those moments. And what's interesting is it sounds like, you know, he was feeling a disconnect and there was because you could not experience things the way he did. Right. And, and so you you can see how his frustration was genuine as was yours. Yeah. And it's, it's almost impossible to meet when it's like, you're at these two completely, well, you are, you're at two completely different states, you know, of consciousness, of experience. And it becomes so difficult for the caregivers to know how to take care. What do I do to keep this person safe? I keep thinking about a conversation with the father of a woman I treated. I said, you know, she needs to be hospitalized. We need to do this to keep her safe. And the father said, what if this breaks her? Because she had had multiple hospitalizations. You know, I'm proposing, let's separate this woman from her child, from her husband. I know this sounds awful. And I said, this is the way to keep her from breaking herself. You know, we're talking about someone who might go lie down on the highway, is is screaming obscenities at her husband in the middle of a restaurant. And I want to point out that I'm actually making an amalgamation of patients at this point. I don't want it <laughs> to sound like I'm identifying anybody, um, but that 
you know, there are very difficult things that both treatment providers and loved ones have to do in order to protect people generally in a manic state. That is so difficult because it is the exact opposite of what they want and what they want to hear. And you are absolutely the bad guy at that point. Closer to the end of Scott's life, um, he had an episode where he, and this had been like building, but this one was really bad where he had like taken off for a uh, gaming tournament because he felt like he had a game that these people needed to see, but he had really like, it's really sad. And and this breaks my heart, but he had really like, when he showed it to me, he had picked up pieces of garbage in market square and like made some thing that I think looked differently to him. And I was like, I, so on his way to do this, he, um, ended up, he's blind without his glasses and he threw his glasses out the window driving to Indiana because he said that there was, um, something in it that was a tracker that was like doing all like knowing all of his moves and then he like freaked out about his phone so he threw that out the window too because he felt like he heard people talking to him in the phone and he was like they're definitely after me he told me this later um and I said so you drove without your glasses like that's you can't see. And, um, you know, then he like got off the highway and went down a road that was closed because he felt like he had to like, that somebody was telling him to do that. And he had to get away from the people behind him. I mean, Mm. it was a journey that it was, um, the fact that he made it there alive is kind of like a miracle, but he, you know, had no glasses, no phone and really like did so many things to avoid, whatever this tracking situation was or people talking to him. And so at that point, um, we've hit a whole nother level of mania. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point we've moved into psychosis, which is something that can happen with mania. And what's really interesting is that in the DSM, the diagnostic and statistical manual, the bipolar disorders are placed between schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders and mood disorders like depression, because it is almost, if we look at these things on a spectrum, which they're not necessarily, it is almost the link between them. So mania can absolutely go all the way to psychosis, which in the simplest terms is just a complete break from observable reality. And, you know, his, and I say observable reality because Scott's reality was someone was tracking him someone was, you know, following him and people on the outside could look at it and say, that's not happening. I remember working with parents when I was at, um, Torrance state hospital on internship, trying to explain psychosis because, you know, their son had just been diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. And I said, these beliefs, this experience is so true to them. So realistic that it would be like telling me Karen Stewart, who raised you? You know, who's been your mother your entire life, who you've loved and adored? That's not real. She's not really here. So just imagine, you know, this is disorienting to watch, but how disorienting it would be to have someone, it would feel like coming at you saying, that's not happening. Over and over again. Over and over and over. And I think the reason I feel so drawn to make this point is I think we need to develop empathy for people with 
these illnesses as well as those in their lives, trying to help care for them rather than, you know, demonizing these disorders or, you know, we will get back to our myth busting, I hope at some point, um, and to just be able to help care for people. It's a really great point. Is that, is, is that sort of like the derealization disorder? I've been seeing that kind of popping up. People are speaking out a little bit more about that. Yeah. So not really. Derealization is more just kind of feeling detached from your body, from the situation, but there's an awareness okay. of it. Okay. So like, if you can say, ah, I think I experienced some derealization, it's not psychotic because you're aware of it. When you are in the midst of a psychotic break, there's no awareness that, that this is something different than what other people would observe, if that makes sense. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Thank you for clarifying. Almost sure. Like detachment. Like detachment, yeah, which like I know I'm doing disassociation. When I do it. disassociation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's exactly that is way more in the disassociate disassociating yeah. than yeah. in psychosis. Which it, you know, my mom will often ask me the question like, why aren't eating disorders psychotic disorders? If you're looking at your body and not seeing it the same way, and it's a great question. Um, I don't have a fantastic answer for it. It's just that we really have such a more distinct break from reality with psychosis. And that's why we put certain diagnoses in that realm. And eating disorders are very specific. Yes. Yes. Like your dysmorphia exists just just on your body. Just for you. Yes, exactly. Where like the reality of all the things is out of whack sometimes when you're in psychosis. And, you know, I obviously wasn't there. I have no idea but my gut tells me from watching the video before he died that he was in a psycho- psychotic state. The way that he was, I, it seemed like as though talking to, I don't know if he was talking to himself or talking to other people or whatever he was doing was so far from like reality. And because he had never, and this, this, you know, this could go each way. Cause I always say that sometimes when people are suicidal, they're not going to tell you they are, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he was just too proud to do that in, in his reality state, in his like real life state. So, you know, psychosis can really be dangerous and and the dangerous part is like to themselves. Yep. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, this is an excellent point about suicide. We tend to really focus on depression with suicide, but mania is just as dangerous, if not more, especially when we get all the way to psychosis, because it, I always say for me, the biggest thing that scares me when I am considering danger to self, it is impulsivity. Yes. Right. And so if no I consequences, have some, exactly. It's just not considering what could happen. And I think probably what happens a lot of times is we don't know. Was this intentional? Was there a command auditory hallucination? So in other words, hearing a voice saying or seeing a vision saying, do this thing. But what's really interesting is people with bipolar disorder are at least 15 times more likely than the general population to die by suicide. And bipolar disorder accounts for about a quarter of completed suicides in the U.S., so this is something that is very, very serious um, related so t- to this disorder. So that's 25% of 
suicides uh, yeah. in the U.S. are mm-hmm. to bipolar mm-hmm. disorder. That's right. And if we think too about, so we just said impulsivity, then with comorbidity, so that just means when we have more than one disorder at the same time, with bipolar disorder, our friend anxiety likes to come in, you're much more likely, because anxiety is an asshole that will just grab anything it possibly can. So you've got some other sort of disorder, here comes the anxiety most of the time. But then ADHD, Yes. And other disruptive disorders. So that those can go hand in hand with bipolar disorder. So you can see how here's our suicide risk just going up and up and up. Or I don't know if we want to say kind of a mysterious death that we're never really going to be able to put together to know exactly what happened because we don't know what's been happening in this person's mind at the time. But then also substance use. So you're much more likely to abuse substances if you have a bipolar disorder. Um particularly with alcohol. And so people who have bipolar disorder and an alcohol use disorder are at much greater risk for suicide attempts. And so of course, if you're at greater risk for suicide attempt, then there's a greater risk of completion of suicide, dying by suicide. Can you take us into bipolar two with the definition? Absolutely. So with bipolar two, you're not going to have those full manic episodes. And what's interesting too, I know you just asked about bipolar two, but to go to bipolar one and just stress again, that the mania is the essential feature. You do not have to have a depressive episode, a major depressive episode. Most people do. Um, but, and women are more likely when they have a bipolar disorder to have the major depressive episodes also. Men sometimes will have the mania and then go to, I don't want to say like a more typical energetically baseline. So there is like, and also it can be like depressive, but sort of more like, fuck, I did A, B, C, and D that I now have to like suffer the consequences for. And they're also epically tired. Oh God. Yes. I mean, think about just the energetic rebound sleep. They would just, he would just sleep for days and days and days. Right. Your body cannot handle for long, you know, this week of almost no sleep, all of this activity. So there has to be some sort of physiological consequence for that. So then if we move into bipolar two, here we have the hypomanic episode. So a hypomanic episode is this distinct period of abnormally and persistently elevated, expansive, or irritable mood. So it might not look quite as happy or energetic as a true manic episode. Um, And then abnormally and persistently increased activity or energy lasting at least four consecutive days. With a manic episode, we're going for seven days to maybe shorter, but you had to be hospitalized because of how severe it is. Um, And then during the period of mood disturbance and increased energy and activity, three or more of the following symptoms have persisted four if the mood is only irritable represent a noticeable change from usual behavior so we have that inflated self-esteem and grandiosity again the decreased need for sleep again more talkative than usual flight of ideas distractibility increase in goal-directed activity excessive involvement in activities you know that have negative consequences so it's the same criteria but for a shorter period of time and there's more chance of it being just irritable, not, you know, all the way 
to the expansive mood that we see with mania. And we're also not going to get to a psychosis with a hypomanic episode. But then we also have the major depressive episode that goes with it, which is all the stuff we talked about um, before when we talked about depression. So you have to meet criteria for hypomania and a major depressive episode for bipolar two. Whereas with bipolar one, I feel like I keep saying it again and again, but it's important. It's the mania that defines it. I get a lot of questions about that and I'm never really able to explain it. So that's a really yeah. good explanation. I was just gonna ask if if there's ever like, and I have no idea, I'm just saying this off the top of my head, bipolar two, does it ever like bleed into like bipolar one later? Sure. Yeah. So what might happen is we're only seeing hypomanic episodes and then all of a sudden we have a manic episode and now we have to change it to a bipolar one. And this, I think that's why this particular diagnosis, specifically a bipolar one disorder diagnosis feels to me almost impossible to make in a traditional outpatient setting because nobody is coming in manic. So this is where we really need collateral um, from spouses, significant others, parents, hospital records. Because the other thing is, I think this is where people will talk, toss around words like, oh, I was so manic. Oh. I know, right? And, and really it just means I had a good day that day. I had some energy. So if you're not really specific with people, what does that mean? And, you know, Amy brought up a great point that often we don't remember things that happen in a manic episode. So it's unlikely that you are going to be able to properly make that diagnosis in an outpatient setting without getting other information because you're just not going to see the mania. On the flip side, I've seen a lot of people diagnosed with bipolar disorder because of the way questions are asked. Like, do you spend a lot of money? Yes, I feel good. I go out and I spend all that money. Have you had a lot of sexual partners? Oh God, if you would have seen me in college, like, you know, or do you drink a lot? And if we don't really dig in, we might actually be talking about typical behavior because these things are pretty subjective. If I just say, do you spend a lot of money? A lot of money to you might not be maxing out your credit cards. And we need something that's essentially dangerous, financially dangerous, or, you know, what is the motivation behind these things that really kind of defines it? So I am always wary when someone comes to me and they say they have a bipolar diagnosis, you know, by history, I ask a ton of questions. And I also hopefully balance that with a whole lot of listening. And what does that mean to you? Tell me what that looks like. And also, may I call whoever it is who may have witnessed this, because that's where I'm really going to be able to know that this was a manic episode or this was a hypomanic episode. And the thing is, a hypomanic episode is still quite problematic. You know, there's still the crash after. But with both of them, the hypomania and the mania, when I've talked to people with bipolar disorders, it's really interesting. They can talk about hypomania and mania like I have seen people talk about a drug of choice. <laughs> 
because it feels so good. Is that why there's some some pushback and difficulty with people in their diagnosis in in not wanting to take their medication? I absolutely think so. I mean, I have even gone so far as to say perhaps I don't like the term med non-compliance, but you know, an aversion to medication should be written into the diagnostic criteria because I mean if you have a week where you're feeling really, really good, you're getting a lot done. You are on top of the world. You know, every publisher is going to want your book. Who wants to say, nah, I'm cool. I'll give that up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a really difficult thing. And I think that's why, you know, I I have said before that I think bipolar disorder can get romanticized because we think of it as like the disorder of the creatives, you know, of poets, of artists, and many have experienced this disorder, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that that is almost as detrimental as stigmatizing it, you know, in a negative way, because Either way, we're not looking at it appropriately. We're not looking at it in a way that we are going to offer people help. I think the romanticism comes from only seeing that outside part, right? So we see the outside version of an actor or a writer or what they've produced and everyone only saw Scott like at the party, right? Or he, he came and dropped everything and picked you up and did every like whatever he did you only saw that part of him what you didn't see is the cleanup afterwards Mm -hmm. and so yeah I mean I think that the world loves a manic person if you don't have ties to them financially if you don't have ties to them you know responsibility wise they are the most fun and most intelligent and most like amazing person to be around, um, in the world. So sure. I'm sure it gets romanticized because to me, it's like, I would never think that just because of my experience. But I think that a lot of people see, um, just the positive things that come out of mania. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say this just because you and I have talked about it before, um, that, a good depiction of that and people's understanding is in that episode of Modern Love with Anne Hathaway, where she meets the man in the grocery store and she's this happy and like ecstatic and like excited and and she's ex- describing things and dancing and singing and he sort of like falls mm-hmm. for her very quickly and makes a date and then you know she's out of that manic state and and forgets about that and and so it's like that when you meet someone in that state and I mean I spent time with Scott in mania Mm -hmm. at parties at when he was on and Mm -hmm. he was performing and he was and you know and he's he was great he was funny he was fun he was intelligent he was a good time to talk to and so I can see how it's can be twisted to think yeah okay well it's not it's not that bad. I mean, he's it's great. It's not that bad. Right? It's not that bad. He's great. Right. And why wouldn't you let him stay up all night? Like, I don't understand. Why are you being such a bitch and making him come home? That's what his friends would say. I'm like, mm-hmm. because if he doesn't sleep, we're, gonna right. we're all fucked. Right. We're all fucked for weeks. You know, and, and that's not something that, you know, you see if you're not in it with them. Um, I like that you gave that that depiction. I think it's important for people to see mania. And then I always say the best 
depiction I've ever seen is in Ozark with the brother in the taxi. And I forget the exact episode. I'll put it in the show notes. But if you watch it, I I swear to God, it's Scott talking because he just like is talking to the taxi cab driver, but not really because the taxi cab driver is not talking back. And he is just going so fast. And he is just like from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, but like having all these big ideas and then like trying to solve. I mean, it is a very good um, depiction in my opinion of what I saw often with Scott. So sometimes Hollywood gets it right. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. So with bipolar one and bipolar two, are they treated in the same way? So essentially, um, the thing is, so we have to be super careful. And so another way sometimes we find out that people have a bipolar disorder is, you know, generally people are going to come in during a depressive episode. And so you refer them to the psychiatrist. They don't have any history as far as we know of mania. They get an SSRI and guess what happens? Oh yeah. Here we go. Welcome Mm -hmm. to your first manic episode. Mm -hmm. So we have to be really careful. And of course, you know, as a psychologist, I can't speak a ton about the medications, but there's generally a mood stabilizer. Um, Sometimes with a hypomania, you can get a mood stabilizer and some sort of antidepressant to work with the major depressive disorders. You're unlikely to do that with a bipolar one. But for both, I would say the biggest things are a good medication regimen and having a trusted therapist who can offer you feedback and can say, because I, the people who I've worked with who have bipolar disorders, I can see it happening. And generally I'll say, Hey, I think it's time that I need to call, you know, your husband, your wife, your mom, whoever, and say, we need to have eyes on this because I don't think we need to go to the hospital at this point, but it feels like you're ramping up. And so another huge thing that I would say, I'm going to make up a statistic, 90% of the people I treat fight schedule and routine. Schedule and routine are good for almost all of us. And most of us resist it, particularly those of us who like to be creative and I just want to go with the flow. There is a reason the first thing we do with kids is try to get them on a schedule. That is scaffolding. It is supportive, but it is particularly important, like Amy just said, to maintain your sleep. It is so important for people with bipolar disorders. So staying on a pretty good sleep-wake cycle, and that's usually the first thing we start to see. If we're not sleeping as much, we're going to start ramping up. And so it can be really important to look at our schedule, look at routine. When things start to go off track, chances are we are moving towards a manic episode. So working with interpersonal rhythms, having everybody around you, and as hard as it is, trusting that people are there to support you. And then as Amy said though, once we get into mania, so the best thing we can do is prevent getting into a full-blown manic episode if possible, because once we're there, all we can do is try to keep someone safe. Can you tell us a little bit about what the difference then would be in someone who would have a diagnosis of schizophrenia? Absolutely. So we're now moving all the way to psychosis. Schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder, and it's characterized by disruptions in thought processes, in perceptions, um, emotional responsiveness, and social interaction. So it's pretty wide-reaching. We're going across domains, and 
with schizophrenia, I think it's really important to talk about what we call the positive symptoms and the negative symptoms, because I think people usually think about the positive symptoms. And we don't say this as you know positive being good, negative being bad. It's positive, I like to think of as kind of extra adding to typical experience okay. and negative. Yeah. And so negative takes away kind of from our typical human experience. So the positive not good, but positive symptoms would be things like hallucinations, though maybe auditory, maybe visual. Believe it or not, we think of visual hallucinations a lot with schizophrenia, but it's usually more auditory, so hearing voices typically, um, than delusions, really firmly held beliefs like there is a government conspiracy, which let's face it, there might be, but this is really strongly held. Usually delusions are based on things like government or religion. So systems in our lives. Um, there can also be kind of different movements and just odd behavior. And then the negative symptoms are things like a flat affect social withdrawal, um, just not engaging so much anymore. So the things that we don't see. And what's really interesting to me is that it's the negative symptoms of schizophrenia that actually predict the worst prognosis, not the presence of the positive symptoms. And I think most people tend to focus on the positive symptoms because they seem more unusual. They're, for lack of a better way of saying it, they're flashier. They're, they're more interesting, basically, to people who don't experience them. And so those get all the attention, but it's the negative symptoms that can cause more problems other than things like command auditory hallucinations, you know, telling us to do something and hurting ourselves or really getting us into trouble. I follow this account on Instagram called schizophrenic.nyc and it is run by a woman named Michelle Hammer and she has schizophrenia and okay. she has a um, camera set up in her house. And so she records her episodes and posts posts them on Instagram to show that these are very harmless episodes that yeah. she'll have. She's mostly just conversation with herself or with, with somebody that's yeah, that's right. not there. And and that's kind of it. And so she creates this brand. She has clothing and things um, that you can uh, buy that are just start, starting the conversation around it. I just really like her a lot. I follow her account. I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Um, there's one shirt that she has. I think you can get it in like stickers and shirts. And it says, I'm mentally ill and I don't kill. And I just oh, think that that's like, I think that's we all awesome. need that shirt. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, why is that the first thing that everybody goes to? Well, right. That, that you're a dangerous person. <laughs> that's the thing. It, it's so wild because if there is one myth we could bust today, that is it. I think that there is somehow this link between schizophrenia and violence. When in reality, people with schizophrenia are way more likely to be the victims of violence, to be the victims of a crime, to, you know, to be hurt in some way than to be hurting other people. Now, we have to admit that yes, people who have schizophrenia, who have command auditory hallucinations have hurt other people, but 
that is so much less likely than the reverse happening. We are generally speaking about a very vulnerable population when we talk about people with schizophrenia because it's one of the most, it falls under what we call severe and persistent mental illness. If you go to a state hospital, most of the people there have some sort of psychotic disorder, you know, uh, generally schizophrenia. These are people who have been victimized, who have not been cared for properly. And again, we need to bust the stigma. And I love this account that you're mentioning, Sarah, because I, I can remember people saying, you know, I've been in two state hospitals. I did all of my master's field placements at Mayview State Hospital and my pre-doc internship at Torrance State Hospital. So I've spent two years of my life around a lot of people with schizophrenia. And it was glorious. I had a blast. Like it, 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 it does not have to be scary for the rest of the population. Um, and I think something, another myth is that these are just, you know, stupid, crazy people. I met some brilliant people there, you know, people who graduated from Carnegie Mellon. And it's actually really, really sad because it can really impact intellectual functioning. There's They're a almost huge always loss. brilliant. <laughs> yes, yes. There, and, and what happens is there is a huge loss of functioning the longer schizophrenia goes on. And it can be or is one of the most difficult um, illnesses to treat. And actually, I think I do mean illnesses overall, whether we're talking mental health or physical health. Um, and it can actually just really have a negative impact because this is another one where we need the medication, but the medication has horrendous side effects. That's so, it's so sad to me. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, these are the, these are the ways that we treat and try to help, you know, people with these illnesses and, and to live a less say. affected by the illness, you know, yes. a, a more, honestly, I would just balanced say happier, or neutral. Healthier. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Balanced. Like balanced. Yeah. What medication is harmful? Well, really? So I hate to say all of them, but pretty much every antipsychotic comes with a lot of physical ramifications. So here's a really staggering statistic. The estimated average potential life lost for individuals with schizophrenia in the U.S. is 28.5 years. Holy shit. So we're shaving all of this time off of life, and that is likely due to comorbid medical conditions because of things like being overweight, heart disease, diabetes, liver disease, which probably at least in part comes from the medication. So some of those medications are similar for bipolar because- Correct. Yes. Antipsychotics are I, often yeah. used. I remember mm -hmm. his doctor saying to us, you're probably going to die from these medications before you die from your illness. That's how you're going to die. His liver was failing. Yep. Um, he had the shakes that was something that he could not get rid of. Yeah. It was just like tremors all the time. Mm -hmm. um, there was, there were so many side effects from the medication that, I mean, again, that's another reason why people don't want to take it. Right. Um, but he was, it, so, so those antipsychotics, while they're fantastic, they cause a whole myriad of other issues. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it, it can, <laughs> some really embarrassing ones. So 
weight loss or weight gain is one of the first thing that happens with almost all of them. Then there's something called tardive dyskinesia where you can't control certain movements. So you might see a little bit of a shuffle there. Um, you'll see, you know, this is actually really interesting. We were talking about undesirable mouth noises, but actually <laughs> you will see people on antipsychotics, particularly the older antipsychotics where they'll do things with their mouth, um, which is actually great that our listeners cannot see me. You don't want to see it, but you'll see them kind of rolling their tongue, um, just doing all kinds of weird facial expressions, then drooling. I mean, who wants to take this medication that makes me do all of these things and then say, yes, now I'm ready to go back to work. Right. And I think people look at people like that. There's a lot of the homeless population that have schizophrenia Yep. and they see them doing all the things you just described. And they're like, oh, that's their schizophrenia. No, it's their medication no, it's their trying medication. to stop the schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a horrible, vicious cycle this is. And then, you know, we also have to throw in, so what do we do? If someone has schizophrenia, they end up in a state hospital. So they're taking these medications that cause all of this stuff and then sitting all day you know, and maybe going outside to smoke cigarettes. Like this is basically the worst thing possible. If we could, you know, have better structure, like we talk about with bipolar disorder, but also some activity, like just get up and do something. But the other thing is the medications can be sedating also, or are often sedating. Yes. So we talked a little bit last episode about language and being careful with the things that we say mm -hmm. and I, around anxiety and depression. I think we should do the same here and watching what we say in terms of using these words and these yeah. terms for these illnesses very flippantly and as though, you know, as explanation for someone's one time, you know, personality trait or a, right. you know, something that if someone has like a little bit of a meltdown or gets upset right. about something and has a reaction to something and then we go ahead and characterize that as, oh my God, she's so bipolar. Right. Well, even I guarantee every single one of us has been called psychotic at some point yes. <laughs> because yes. we've said something that someone doesn't like or no, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm 99% sure I have never experienced psychosis. I should know. Right. Right? Like, right. It's, we toss these things around, not thinking about, first of all, just the impact in general, but who's hearing this and how is that impacting them? And what message are you presenting in terms of whether someone can come to you in the future to talk about this stuff? Like if someone has said, oh, that's so psychotic or, oh, I'm so bipolar. Are you going to go to them and tell them right. you're struggling with a bipolar disorder or a loved one is? Absolutely not. And that's when we need so much help. Right. The words can't be tossed around. We talked about this with suicide. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's too much. And I talked to you guys about this off air, but I'll just say it now in Lily's per, er, play that she was in. One of the lines in the song was, um, Fiona saying, I'm so bipolar, meaning like one minute I'm happy, one minute I'm sad. Right. I mean, and the audience, <laughs> you got to love Pittsburgh. Sorry. But, um, they, they, in an uproar, they thought it was hilarious. <sighs> and I was like, Oh, every time I heard it, it just like hurt my heart more. And I'm sure it's just an old production that needs to be updated. Sure. But, you know, those are the things that you don't know who's in the audience. You really yeah. don't. What if there is a teenager who's just been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or a, or a parent or whoever or someone like me who's lost someone? It's really offensive to just say that so flippantly. 
Right. right. Or you're so schizo. That, that was uh, well, and that's an interesting one. I think when you say that, Amy, it kind of brings up, you know, when we say you're so schizo, it's like, oh, you're, you're switching, you're whatever. And that I think brings up one of the biggest myths about schizophrenia is that it is, um, somehow associated with, or the same thing as multiple personality disorder and, or dissociative. So it was multiple personality disorder. Now it's dissociative identity disorder. But I think the way that started was with the idea of split personality. And so schizophrenia does actually mean split mind, but what people don't think or don't realize with that is that the split is from observable reality. It is not two distinct personalities. It's all the same person. It's all the same personality as much as personality objectively exists. It's a break from reality. It's a really good point. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, myself even years ago would have thought sure. that multiple personalities and schizophrenia were the same, but they're different disorders. Absolutely. There's a show on Prime, Amazon Prime called Undone. And it's an animated show, and it's a depiction of. It's not like that, though. I'm it's just not, fucking with you because it's. it's just, I know. <laughs> so for everyone, it's a running joke. Amy doesn't do animation, but it's it's weird. It's a different kind of animation. It's made with real actors, okay. So they're like drawn over. It's drawn over their actual oh interesting okay, faces and stuff. Yeah. So it's animated though because it is about a person with schizophrenia Mm. so there are the it's that break from reality so they have to be able to show that in a way yeah that's um it's creative real like real to that person i think that is so interesting you should definitely i mean check it out and watch it there is now i mean i'm not gonna i don't want to like give any spoilers but you know the first season really focuses around it being a, a schizophrenic um, episode and then the second season sort of is more focused on from her perception of it and it being this time travel sort of situation oh so it's sort of like is this a sci-fi time travel thing or is this a person with schizophrenia that's experiencing a break from reality that is so interesting, interesting. so it's sort of what I really like about that is is if it is about a person experiencing schizophrenia is that you're really involved in that story mm-hmm. and you're believing that story. And so you're right. getting to kind of experience what she's feeling and thinking that this is real. This is my so, reality. And this is really, really interesting because it, we haven't talked about it this way and don't often, but bipolar disorders and schizophrenia and psychotic disorders deal so much with perception because, you know, we're talking about, you know, hallucinations, those are perceptions, right? And even things like I've had people describe mania and say, color is they see color differently. It's crisper. Things are brighter. And then I had, I I can actually remember an experience where a patient with schizophrenia came into my office. I think it was a master's student and he decided he was going to try to help me by telling me about how his hallucination started. And it was magical. It, it was so cool. He explained to me how things just kind of started to, it would look how he expected. And then things would just morph into something completely different. This is all perception. And it just shows how much of 
this happens. So these particular illnesses happen in our brain or our mind, depending on how we want to conceptualize it, because that's where perception takes place. And then there's also, if we stick with perception, the perception of the individual experiencing it from the inside, and then the distinct break from the perception of those watching from the outside. It's so interesting. And I would love to learn more about it just to be able to empathize and, Mm -hmm. you know, educate more. I wanted to talk about one more thing um, about this is, and, and it involves trauma. And the reason I ask about this is because the last place that Scott went for help was a 30-day treatment center that focused around trauma. And he believed that his bipolar disorder either was triggered by trauma or was non-existent and he only had trauma. And he was in a manic state, I believe, that entire Mm -hmm. time he was there. So it's really hard to like figure out what's real and what's not real. But since then I've done some research on my own and I really do think that there is this connection between trauma and specifically bipolar disorder, like almost like it triggers. Like I think about my dad's MS, like he, like he had it, but he didn't have it until he fell and something like triggered it, like stressor, mm-hmm. like physically, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and then it came full fledged. So like it lies dormant almost yeah. until something yeah. happens. Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. And so I'm wondering, is that true? with bipolar. And then if that's true with bipolar, how many things is it true with? Um, uh, pretty much all of them. I okay, would awesome. say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so, so trauma, absolutely. It is. So I always say that every therapist should be at least trauma informed. We don't have to be trauma specialists, but we have to assume that we're going to see a lot of people with a trauma history if we are going to work in mental health. And you're kind of talking about something without knowing it, I'm sure, called the diathesis stress model, which basically says we have these- Definitely did not know I was talking about that. (laughs) I Um, thought you meant all wrong, Amy. Yeah, you should have been like, "Um, absolutely. That's what I was trying to get at, actually. I mean, actually, guys, I know things- Hey, here I, I am excited that I remembered something from my master's program. I'm like, that's what this is. This is that was, that was stress model. Seriously, like the most fancy word and it made me feel smart just like hearing it. But really what this says is that we have some predispositions probably and, and both, you know, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder generally are thought of having a strong genetic component. Now, there's not one gene and we don't always necessarily pass it on. It's probably a combination of genes. But so we have predispositions to a number of things. And then if the right or I would say wrong conditions happen, they will no longer be dormant, as Sarah said, and they will start to manifest. So trauma can be a trigger for so many things. And as you noted, particularly with these diagnoses. It's never a surprise to me as I'm working with someone. And it's, and even if they haven't said it, you know, at intake, trauma is often very difficult to talk about, but that later I, I hear a pretty significant trauma once we've established trust and then this will come out. And then it's a few years later that, you know, the disorder has started to really take hold. Are these two diagnoses related to chemical imbalances in the brain? Or are they, I know we were talking about, they're not personality disorders. Right. Absolutely not. 
And personality disorders, can you just kind of give us what that would entail? So that would be something that's formed because of like a nurture situation? Right. It it could be. Absolutely. So probably a bunch of environmental factors. And again, trauma, really important in a lot of um, personality disorders. But with personality disorders, we're talking about a pretty fixed way of interacting with other individuals and the world around us. And it's not going to change so much like symptoms of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, you know? So I can see how someone might say, you know, someone who's in a manic state, they may be like, man, what a narcissist. That's not what it is at all. It's just, they sound grandiose because of that's one of the symptoms of their disorder and that see them in a week and that's going to be gone. Whereas if we're talking about someone with a narcissistic personality disorder, it's going to be there next week. But in terms of, you know, is this a chemical imbalance? I think that might be a, a bit of a simplistic way of looking at it. And we can't necessarily say it's this one chemical. I mean, if it was God, we'd probably have such better treatments, but they are typically thought of as more, organic disorders, meaning there is some sort of physiological, generally brain basis for it. There's actually a really cool book that just came out a couple of, maybe 2020. It's called Hidden Valley Road. And it looked at a specific family where they had, I think it was 12 children, 10 boys, two girls, and six of the boys had schizophrenia. Whoa. Now, keep in mind, in general, less than 1% of the population of the U.S. has schizophrenia. 50% of their children had schizophrenia, and they were all boys. So it is a little slightly more common in men than women, and there's a little bit of a different course. Men usually have their first psychotic break a little bit earlier than women, um, and it's usually the prognosis is then worse in men because that break happens sooner. But so this family presented a really unique opportunity to try to look at genetic components, and they still couldn't really pinpoint one thing. It was a combination of different genes, etc. Wow. Wow. That's right. And on one hand, I think it's interesting that it is so fascinating and we can get sucked into that part of it, but it's important to also focus on the human part of it that is so heartbreaking so that we don't lose empathy and just become fascinated by it. And I think that for the folks out there who are listening, who this is something that you've been diagnosed with or someone you know who's been diagnosed with, knowing that there is help and there Mm -hmm. is ways to make it work in your life. Um, And, you know, with Scott, we tried a lot of things, like you said, about having a plan. So Mm -hmm. exercise, sleeping, um, you know, eating right, those sorts of things. Those were difficult for him for other reasons. He also like He also had, you know, he had ADHD. He had, there was a lot of things happening. So sometimes I've, from what I've learned from the um, groups I'm in, there are people who can follow those and can lead a very productive life by doing that. There's also, you know, you leave a list of like, this is what to do when this happens. He just happened to have a lot of cards stacked against him. There is still hope for some people who are not, you know, who've been diagnosed. It's not a death sentence, I guess is what I want to say. You know, there's hope for all of these uh, disorders and illnesses by getting help and, you know, learning more and following outside your medication, other treatments as well. 
Yes. And I think what's really important to note here is that when we talked about anxiety, depression, we talked about treatment lag and how many people are untreated. It is even worse with these disorders. So please, 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 if anything sounds familiar, you know, for you, for a loved one, do not delay because especially with schizophrenia, if we can get people treated within the first six months of their first psychotic break, treatment outcomes improve a lot. And you might have to, like we said with other things, you have to be patient, which is so, so, so hard, but you have to keep trying things and you might have years where things are easier. And then, you know, go back in for some tweaking, but please don't ever feel like there is nothing that can help you because there are people who want to help. There are things that can help and, you and know, I there's think no reason that, to suffer. Yeah. The more help you can get at the beginning, yep. the better the outcome. And I'm speaking obviously unqualified extremely. Um, but for Scott, he didn't get the help. He did, but he whatever happened is that he had so many manic episodes so many big ones that, you know, would you agree with some of the things that I've been told by my therapist that like his brain broke so badly that it just couldn't get put back together? Yeah. Yes. I think that there are so many breaks or splits. That's a great way to say it. And, And I mean, we even think of that with a major depressive disorder. Essentially, the more episodes you have, the more episodes you are likely to have. So we want to nip things in the butt as much as possible. And even just think about, I mean, just energetically, the toll on your mind, on your brain, on your body, this going, 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 crash, going, 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 crash, that just doesn't even sound sustainable. It's exhausting just talking about it. Yeah. Like I feel tired. Yeah. And I, and I do think that at the end of his life, that's what it was. He was tired. Yeah. He was so, so tired. I think that's what can happen. Um, You know, it is a hard road, but if we can be kinder to each other, if we can educate ourselves, if we can stop passing such quick judgment, and if we can try to be there for people and their families um, and not be scared, I guess, of them and not push them away. I mean, obviously we want to have our own boundaries for our own lives and all of our own symptoms and, you know, all of those things. I get that, but there, it comes a long way to not say such flippant things, uh, as well as to be kind and to reach out even just like a nice little text. Like, let's say you can't actually do something for your friend right now. Like you're in a place yourself. Like I can't actually like go be there for my friend who's bipolar and is in an episode. Like you can at least send a text and say, I'm thinking about you and I love you. And, um, you know, I hope that you're well or whatever. I think that that goes a long way. Absolutely. I think it's something that we have talked about and probably will continue to talk about is just how isolating this all can feel. And then that we forget that it connects us to the millions and millions of people who are experiencing this in one way or another. So just to have some contact, some Mm -hmm. moral support is, I mean, it sounds a little trite, but that could be the one thing that saves that person's life that day. Because what it does is it grounds them. It brings them back to reality right now. So they're like, uh, you know, you get a text from, let's say it's me and I get a text from Sarah. I'm like, oh, 
my God, there's somebody else in my life. Like I forgot about her. Cause you really do. You forget mm-hmm. about the rest of the people. Oh shit. She's thinking about me. Like I can't leave like that sort of thing. And it yeah. really brings your feet back to the ground. And I've watched that happen for him. And I've watched that happen for me. I've watched that happen for you. Like Mm -hmm. it really does bring us back to the present moment. And we, again, that's what we talked about last episode and, and really finding some grounding of like, okay, till the next moment. Mm -hmm. Yep. Every time that I have been pulled out of a suicidal ideation crisis, I would say where I'm not in a good spot, it has been something small. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So people don't think that you have to do these huge grand gestures to anyone to help them in a state of mental distress. A very small gesture of support is yeah. really all that it can take to change something The course of someone's life, you have no idea. Right. So just I be would kind. say, yeah, go, I would go so far as to say, you don't actually have to do anything. You just have to be there, right? Just another person, just some presence. Mm-hmm. can be the most grounding thing in the world. I want to do an entire episode around this, but I also feel like it is extremely important to mention this just because of experiences in the past that you and I have both shared, Amy. And that is if you are an employer or if you are a person in a position of power, if you are a manager or a supervisor or whatever, and one of your employees comes to you and says, my spouse is struggling or I am struggling. I encourage you to take a stance of support Mm -hmm. and to leave the fear at the door, to learn what you can about what they're coming to you about and to offer your support and to just say, listen, I'm here for you. Um, You let me know how I can be of help. Like what is it that I can do for you that will be helpful to you instead of turning your back and, and basically saying, I don't know what any of this is about. I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid you're going to hurt people. I'm afraid your spouse is going to hurt people. I'm afraid, you know, and just kind of defaulting to that fear. And so I know that this is, you know, kind of outside of what we're talking no, about. I'm so appreciative that you said this. It's, it's I don't just even something... think it is outside of what we're talking about. Sorry to cut you off, Sarah, because no, earlier, okay. I think it was when we were talking about like, what do we call this? What do we... I don't remember what we were talking about, but I wanted to say, well, if this was cancer, yes. what would you do? So that's actually what my advice would be to employers or people in a management position. Ask yourself, what would I do if this person came to me and said, my husband has cancer. I need some help because this can be as debilitating. This is as real a thing. Right. And Dr. Katie just got heated about that. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to help you get FMLA. I'm going to show oh my God. guide you the That's steps. Right. Instead, of, instead of looking at you and thinking like, oh, you're a risk factor now. Okay. Well, what was I for the last 10 years that I've been like a right. very like, before you, you know, knew about this. Exactly. And so employers, my own and Scott's over the years have been our biggest um, setbacks, our biggest like things that have kicked our ass because finances, when you are in a situation like this will take you down. So he lost more jobs than I can count because of his illness, but he wasn't allowed to take the time. He wasn't allowed to tell what he had. So it just spiraled us out and we all know what's going on with mine. It's just, it's please for God's sake, like they're people 
Like we're not just like, what do they say? Cogs in a wheel. Yeah. Yeah. We're not replaceable numbers. And, you know, growing up, toxic work environments exist. I've been in them. I have heard managers say, like, I've already forgotten. Like when somebody puts in their notice, I've already forgotten about them. I can replace them in my sleep. And it's like, wow, wow. Yes. Let's reconnect to that human aspect. And that if this were you, you know, God forbid anything like this happened to you in your future. Well, this is funny. Now I'm taking us way off topic, but a patient brought up, (laughs) I think it was last week or the week before a patient said, you know, I stole one of your lines. And I was like, Oh, which one was that? (laughs) And (laughs) apparently I said to this patient, you know, there's something really interesting about working in a department that refers to humans as resources. (laughs) <laughs> Never put that together. No. <laughs> I mean, so just consider that. that We're certainly taking different approaches here. If someone is thinking of you as a resource versus a human, let's focus on the first word, not the second. That gets me going. I'm yeah. pretty, I'm pretty fucking fired <laughs> up right now. I'm now. getting really fired up because. Shake it out. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Shake it out. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, it's a plea. We are, we are making a plea. We are making a plea because I know there's bosses out there listening. Yeah. Managers, owners of companies. So please know better, do better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you know, now, you know, you can't say you didn't. All right. Wow. And with that, and with that, (laughs) we're going to wrap this conversation for this week, but be sure to go back and listen to our previous conversation with Dr. Katie Stewart about anxiety and depression, if you haven't already, and be sure to tune in for next week when we come back with (laughs) other stuff. Pause, pause for dramatic effect. Pause. A discussion that is going to be very close to me and Amy's hearts, and that is around complex PTSD, PTSD, and trauma. So it'll be another light one. (laughs) (laughs) It will be because we'll have a lot of our own anecdotes to throw in there. The chances of laughter are 100%. They are 100%. Yes. God. Wow. Thank you all for tuning in. I really hope that you can take away some hope, some education, and maybe some even laughter that from our silliness uh, in a very difficult topic. Please be kind to each other. Know better. Do better. And thank you, Katie, so much for joining us. You again. are welcome. My pleasure. This episode was brought to you by Sarah Simone and Amy Baumgartner. Theme song and other music provided by Epidemic Sound. Editing and production by Sarah Simone. To help us keep making episodes just like this, join our fan club at patreon.com slash unqualifiedtherapistsinc. Follow us on Instagram at unqualifiedtherapists, where you will find our link tree to all things here at the UT. If you have a story to tell or a topic you'd like us to discuss, email us at unqualifiedtherapists at gmail.com. Until next week, warrior, hold on. We're going to make it. Say it now, say it proud, shout it out, make it where we go.